Hello, and welcome to Kingwood United Methodist Church. Thank you for joining us today. Wherever you're listening from and whatever service you're listening to, we strongly believe because of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, there is always more to life. Uh, my name is Pastor Jeremy Bass. For those of you all who don't know me, uh, pastor of this service here at the Contemporary uh, Worship Venue, and then also the pastor of discipleship. It's good to be with you all here this morning. Uh, we have, this sermon series is going to be a bit different, so we decided to do a year-long sermon series. Uh, not a year-long sermon series like back-to-back, but sort of sprinkling throughout, like seasoning throughout the year. So take a deep breath, all will be well. Uh, what we decide is, you know, sometimes we have these like standalone weeks, like in between sermon series or right before special uh, church events. And we thought, you know, rather than just having sort of a, a one and done, just pick a random scripture to preach on, what if we had kind of a pool of different topics that we could pull from and teach from? And so we came up with this series called Faith Matters. And it's talking about uh, these different core aspects of the Christian faith that we maybe assume that everyone knows, but we don't really kind of talk about. And so taking those in-between times to talk about these core aspects of the faith. One of the things that we believe uh, in the scriptures, there's this idea of orthodoxy, meaning right belief. And then there's this other idea called orthopraxy, meaning right practice. And how we believe that right belief or right doctrine leads into right practice. Kind of a classic example of that is if you believe God is a harsh dictator, ready to slap you on the wrist anytime you sin, it's going to affect your relationship with the Lord and it's going to affect how you pray to him and how you worship him. Whereas if you believe God is a loving father who, when we sin, invites us back into his arms and redeems us by his grace, that changes what you think about God and it changes your relationship and changes your faith. And so the way that we believe about what we believe about God is fundamentally intertwined with how we live out that faith. And so today we're talking about uh, the easiest topic in the world, uh, the Trinity. Uh, how many of y'all know the Trinity backwards and forwards? Uh, no? Okay, good, because no one in church history has uh, been able to fully comprehend the Trinity. Uh, St. Augustine, one of the uh, most prolific writers in the Christian faith, most of Western theology is based off the writings of St. Augustine. He was a monk uh, in the three to four hundreds. He spent 30 years writing his treatise on the, Holy, uh, on the Trinity. It took him 30 years, and then he died and it was left unwritten. And so if St. Augustine can't figure out the Holy Spirit in 30 years, uh, there's no way that I'm going to cover everything in a 25, 30-minute sermon. So bear with me, uh, and we'll dive in this together. Before we get started, though, I think it's important to say, uh, Erica told me not to say this, but you know what? I'm just going to dive right into it. Uh, There's a good chance that you all are heretics of some strand or another. Uh, that joke fell flat in the 9.30 as well. But as long as, <laughs> as long as I'm laughing, that's really all that I care about. Uh, you may remember from Arrested Development, George Sr. talks about how he may have committed some light treason. Uh, we all have committed some light heresy, one could say. And so we're going to look at, before we talk about what the Trinity is, it's important to say what the Trinity is not. 
And so beginning with the idea that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three persons, one essence. Father, Son, Holy Spirit is how we talk about Trinity. And there's a, I didn't have these ones on the screen because I thought of them this morning. Uh, there's this uh, heresy of Arianism, which is what the Council of Nicaea prompted, which is the belief that Jesus Christ was not divine, that Jesus Christ is the, most, is the greatest of all creation, but Jesus was not divine. And then there's the Macedonian heresy, which is that the Holy Spirit is not divine. And so to start off these different heresies is that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are fully divine beings. And kind of some classic Trinitarian heresies are, what does that look like? It's usually a wrong overemphasis. That's what most heresies are, is it's an overemphasis on a truth. And that's what we see with Trinitarian heresies. The first is tritheism, which is an overemphasis on the three persons of the Trinity. Tritheism is this. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are three independent and distinct divine beings as opposed to three persons of one being and one essence. So a common analogy of this heresy is the egg. Have you ever heard someone describe the Trinity as an egg to you? that there's the shell, there's the yolk, and then there's white, and that all the parts make up one egg. If you've heard that analogy, that is a heretical analogy uh, because the egg is quite distinctive from the white, which is quite distinctive from the yolk, and it's separate. It's completely separate parts, and there's not that harsh separation that we see in the Trinity. There's not three gods like Zeus, Jupiter, or Hera. Zeus and Jupiter, same thing. Um, there's not distinct gods like we think of with paganism. And then the second kind of most common Trinitarian heresy is called modalism. And it's this idea that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are three characterizations or modes of one God rather than three distinct persons in one God. So kind of a, the classic Trinitarian heresy for this one is the water analogy. So you may have heard this, that the Trinity is like water. It appears as steam. It appears as liquid. It appears as frozen, but it's all one water. Uh, that is a modalism heresy because the idea is it's the same water, but it's appearing in different forms. It's not actually distinct or different. And it's this idea that um, like putting on masks is kind of a good way that I like to think about it, that there's one God who's just putting on a different appearance, and that's the modalism heresy. Uh, if you've heard of oneness Pentecostalism, that's kind of what they believe uh, is this idea that there's, it's an overemphasis on the oneness of God. So tritheism is an overemphasis on the three persons. Modalism is an overemphasis on the oneness of God. So, that leads us to the question, what is a good definition of the Trinity? As best as we can understand, I think this is the best definition. Uh, this is from the Athanasian Creed, that we worship one God in Trinity, and the Trinity in unity, neither blending their persons nor dividing their essence. For the person of the Father is a distinct person, and the person of the Son is another, and that of the Holy Spirit is still another. But the divinity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is one. Their glory equal, their majesty co-eternal. 
And this is kind of a good picture of uh, description of the Trinity, that you have the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, that they are all God, and yet there seems to be some distinctiveness. There is distinctiveness between the three persons. So three persons, one essence of God. So then the question that's often asked about the Trinity is, is this idea found in Scripture? Kind of a common charge made um, against Christianity is that this was made up uh, multiple centuries later after the church was founded, which is not true. Uh, The Trinity was talked about throughout Scripture, throughout the early parts of church history. It's just when you see these Trinitarian heresies, you have to say, uh, well, we need to really codify what we've always believed. And so we're going to be looking at one of the texts today that talks about the Trinity. There's a lot of Trinitarian texts, but I want to kind of focus on this 1 John passage. So if you have your Bibles and you want to open up to 1 John. So the question, is the Trinity in the Bible? It's a yes and no answer. No, the word Trinity is never found in Scripture. Like if you did a word search for Trinity, that word is not found in Scripture. But the idea of God being triune is found all throughout the New Testament. And so let's look at 1 John chapter 4, starting in verse 7. And listen for the Trinitarian language as we read. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world, that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we ought to also love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us his spirit that we have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world, that Trinitarian language. If anyone acknowledges Jesus as the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God, and God in them. The word of God for you and me, the people of God. Thanks be to God. And so you see in this text, uh, John says the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He uses those three terms to refer to the Godhead. And there's, when John writes, he talks about the distinctiveness between the two, that God does not equate the Father with the Son. He does not equate the Son with the Spirit, that there's this distinctiveness to them. And yet all three are equally God. All three are equally the divine being. It refers to all three persons. And so you see the word Trinity. If you're looking for that word Trinity, it's not found in here. But you can see the basis by which these early church uh, theologians based their theology off of that. They could find it right here in the divinely inspired pages of the text. That there's a distinct personhood within the Trinity, yet these persons are not confounded. That you see the Son, the Spirit, and the Father, that there's not a blending or intermixing of the two. There's distinctiveness, and yet there's also unity in the middle of that. 
So it's hard to fully wrap our mind around. And I think it's important to state that, that we can never fully wrap our mind around the Trinity. But we see it throughout the Bible. We see it throughout the scriptures. Aquinas, one of the smartest people in church history, uh, wrote this massive text called Summa Theologica, just this massive theological treatise. And he writes this about the importance of the Trinity in the Christian faith. It is impossible to believe explicitly in the mystery of Christ without faith in the Trinity, since the mystery of Christ includes that the Son of God took on flesh, the second person of the Trinity, and that he renewed the world through the grace of the Holy Spirit, and again, that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. And consequently, when once grace had been revealed, all were bound to explicit faith in the mystery of the Trinity. In other words, what Aquinas is getting at is that even the story of Jesus cannot be understood without understanding God is triune, God is three in one, that the Father sends the Son, the second person of the Trinity, that the second person of the divine being takes on human flesh. Thanks again for joining us for today's message. We will return to the sermon in a moment, but first, we would like to ask for you to rate, share, and subscribe to our podcast. We believe God is doing some amazing things here at KUMC, and your feedback helps our church to reach new listeners that we wouldn't otherwise be able to reach. Now, let's get back to the work. And then when Jesus is risen in glory, that the Father sends the Holy Spirit in us. That there is this sending, there's this giving, there's this three-in-oneness, there's this Trinitarian aspect that is the core of our faith, that even understanding the personhood and the divinity of Jesus is understanding the Trinity. That our faith is based off this understanding that God is triune. And once you understand God is three in one, once you kind of accept that reality, you begin to see it everywhere in the scriptures. Uh, just kind of some classic Trinitarian text, just to show you that it's not cherry-picked throughout uh, this one verse. Uh, Matthew three sixteen through 17. This is the baptism of Jesus. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was open, and he saw the Spirit of God descending on him like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love with whom I love and am well pleased. You see this Trinitarian, that the Son of God and the person of Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, the Spirit descends upon the second person of the Trinity and God the Father proclaims his love for the Son of God in the baptism of Jesus, that all three are present in the baptism of Jesus, that all three play a central role in our salvation story. Genesis uh, in the very beginning, we see this. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that we, they may rule over the fish and the sea and the birds and the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. Um, when Jewish theologians talk about this, they say that it's the, the royal we, meaning that they say we, but they really mean I. 
Uh, I like to think that this is the Holy Spirit divinely dropping hints throughout the Old Testament about the nature of God. So we see that the, the whole Trinity plays a role in creation. Matthew 28, 19. This is right before Jesus is taken up into heaven. Jesus says this, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. That in baptizing in the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, that the Godhead is sending us forward in mission, that all are present in the mission of the salvation of the world, that all are sending us out and that all are present in our salvation. When I was in seminary and took a class on this, uh, my professor showed me this icon. It was written, or uh, painted, painted, uh, painted by a 14th century Russian monk uh, called Rublev's Icon. And what he's portraying here is sort of two different things. One, he's portraying the Genesis story of the three angels visiting Abraham. And in Christian tradition, we look back and say that's the Trinity visiting Abraham. So it's also a representation of the Trinity. And kind of just breaking down this icon, there's multiple different facets of it that show us what the Trinity is like. If you notice first that there's three uh, distinct persons in this picture. But if you also look closer, you may notice that each of the distinct persons has the same face, indicating the oneness and the unity that is in the Trinity, that their faces are identical. And this can kind of be hard to see because of the wear and tear. You can see it best with the middle and the right one. They're all holding a staff, and the staff is indicating their divine nature. And their faces are bent towards one another in submission of one another. And you notice at the center of the table, there's a chalice and what looks like a piece of meat. That's a chalice representing the blood of the new covenant. And in the chalice, the meat is a lamb. That the mission of the Trinity is for our salvation. And you notice the second, if you look at the middle person, you see that his fingers are pointed to the lamb and the chalice. That's the sun. Son pointing to the chalice, indicating that he is going in mission, going to become the lamb of the world, become the sacrifice for us. And you can kind of see it on the left, just barely. Uh, that's the father, and the father has his hands in the shape of a blessing, and he is blessing the mission of the son and the spirit. The spirit represented on the right, uh, is, his hands are pointing outward to us, to the world. An invitation signifying that the Holy Spirit is poured out over the world. And what I love about this too is notice how uh, the table seems to include us. That it's not a closed table, but the Godhead has opened, has opened up to us. And it's extending, extending outwards towards us that the Trinity invites us into the divine reality. So as we talk about the Trinity, it's important to understand that there is, there is a fundamental element of mystery in the Trinity. Mystery meaning it's not incomprehensible, it's not pure nonsense, but we can't fully wrap our minds around it. And we have to get to a point where we kind of embrace the mystery of the faith that God cannot fully be comprehended by human minds. And I would kind of expect that, 
that the eternal divine being cannot fully be comprehended by human minds. There's this, I love this quote by St. Gregory. It's kind of my go-to quote when I think about the Trinity. He says this, No sooner do I conceive of the one, am I illumined by the splendor of the three. No sooner do I distinguish them, than am I carried back to the one. When I think of any one part, any one of the three, I think of him as the whole, and my eyes are filled, and the greater part of what I am thinking escapes me. Excuse me. I cannot grasp the greatness of that one so as to attribute a greater greatness to the rest. When I contemplate the three together, I see but one torch and cannot divide or measure out the undivided light. I think that's just this idea that when we begin to think about the distinctive persons of the Trinity, our mind is then drawn back to the unity that they held. And then when we think about the unity that they have together, we think back to the personhoods. And we're just this constant back and forth until we just humbly submit to the beauty of the light that we are beholding. I love that image that St. Gregory paints. There's a story uh, by St. Augustine. I don't know how accurate it is, but I think it's a good story. So Augustine spent 30 years writing his treatise on the Trinity, left it unfinished. There's this one point when he was writing, he was having writer's block, and he said, you know what would be good for my writer's block? Walking on the seashore. So he goes and he's walking on the beach, and he says that he sees this young boy who had dug a hole in the sand, and he knows this young boy had a seashell in his hand, and he was running to the sea, scooping water in his seashell, and then running back to the hole and dumping water into the hole. And Augustine kind of watched this for a little bit, and he was like, this is a weird thing that this kid's doing. And he said, hey, hey, little man, uh, what are you doing there? Uh, why are you doing that? And the little boy says, well, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to take this seashell and I'm trying to take the whole ocean and I'm trying to put the ocean into this hole. And Augustine says, oh, that's a, that's a very silly thing that you're doing. Don't you know that you can't put this whole ocean in that little hole? And the story goes that the little boy looked at Augustine and said this, um, I will sooner succeed in drawing all the water from the sea and emptying it into this hole, then you will succeed in penetrating the mystery of the Holy Trinity with your limited understanding. In some sense, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to take a little seashell and scoop the ocean and put it into a hole. That the vastness of God with our limited understanding is limited. And knowing that and accepting that It's part of the challenge of the faith. I love this quote from John Wesley. He talks about um, accepting the fact and the reality of the Trinity and being comfortable with not understanding how it works. So John Wesley says this, to apply this to the case before us, there are three that bear record in heaven, and these three are one. I believe this fact also, if I may use the expression, that God is three in one. But the manner, how I do not comprehend, and I do not believe it. Now in this, in the same manner, lies the mystery, and so it may, I have no concern with it. In other words, I understand the reality that God is three in one, but I don't understand how it works, and I don't concern myself with it. He says, going on, it is no object of my faith. 
I believe just so much as God has revealed and no more. But this, the manner, how does, in other words, God has revealed the fact that he is three in one, but he has not revealed to us how that works. This manner has not revealed, therefore I believe nothing about it. But would it not be absurd of me to deny the fact because I do not understand the manner? That is to reject what God has revealed because I do not comprehend what he has not revealed. It's this reality that God has shown us glimpses into his divine being, but not the full reality of it. Scripture talks about that we see in a mirror dimly or darkly, that we're getting just reflections here on earth about the divine reality that exists beyond us. That's a mystery that we can know in part and see in part, but one day we will see the beauty and the majesty of the eternal trinity face to face. So then the question becomes, why does this matter? I'm sure you maybe had this in the back of your mind the whole time. Why does it matter that we understand God and Trinity? Why does it matter? You know, the series is about right belief leads to right practice. And the first thing that we can take away from the Trinity and why it's important is that God is love. The Trinity allows us to say God is love. Going back to the first John passage, first John four, starting in verse 13, says this. As you know, it was because of an... Oh, no, that's Galatians. All right, now we're in First John. Uh, this is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us his spirit, and we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that, the son, that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. So you see that Trinitarian language right there. And so... We know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. The importance of this really was driven home in my undergrad. Uh, They had the president of a Christian, I think it was a seminary or a university in Jordan. It was the only uh, Christian college in in the Muslim Middle East. And he said that he did his PhD work on the Trinity because for him, in his context, uh, the big hang-up that a lot of Muslims have with Christianity is not necessarily the Jesus part, it's with the Trinity part. A core aspect of Islamic doctrine is the oneness of Allah, the oneness of God. Uh, there's this idea in Islamic art of the, what's called the Tawheed, which is the kind of looping, repetitive artwork that you'll see and kind of Islamic Middle Eastern art, because that's representing the oneness or the unity of God. That God is one, is the, this rampant, profound oneness of God is so big in Islamic theology. And what he said is, okay, I need to defend the Trinity to people who are around me. And what he said in his research, what he found, is that because Allah is one, Muslims cannot say with certain confidence that Allah loves them. And the reason he said that is because before there was eternity past, uh, love is, a, is an outward action. To love something means to, to look beyond yourself. That love is essentially outward. And if there is only one Allah, no community, from eternity past there was nothing to love. 
And so when creation comes, when a law decides to create, a law can choose to love, yet at the same breath, he can also choose not to love. He said what we see in Trinity, in three persons, one essence, that in that eternal reality of God, the eternal reality of the Godhead, you see the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit existing in loving, giving community with one another. And so when we say God is love, what we're saying is the eternal reality and character of God is one of a loving relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit before anything existed, which means that God's love is not dependent on creation. It's an outflowing of who the Godhead fundamentally is. So God is love, and we can understand that God loves us because it's an outflowing of his divine character. Second thing we can take away from the Trinity to our faith is that God exists in community, which means that we're designed to exist in community and we're invited into the community of the Godhead. Going back to the idea of the Rubelev's icon, the, the table is open and extended to us to participate in that loving relationship that we are invited to participate in the community of the triune God as the Lord exists. And also that community with one another is essential because it's essential to the fabric of God himself. Galatians 4, 4 through 7 talks about being participants in the divine community. It says this, But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father so that you are no longer slave but child of God. Since you are his child, God has also made you his heir. The Lord invites us into the richness of community. And lastly, understanding that God is beyond us. That God is beyond us. That understanding the mystery of God, the mystery of the Trinity. Sometimes I think we want to wrap our minds fully. We want to have everything figured out about God. And the mystery of the Trinity reminds us that God is greater than ourselves. That God is so far beyond ourselves yet. And yet, seeing that God is so far beyond us, I think, emphasizes the radicalness of Jesus. That in the divine Reality, the second person of the Trinity, takes on the frailty of human flesh, mortality, weakness, sweat, all those things of what it means to be fully human. God condescends to us and becomes one of us so that we can become like him. That's the profound truth and hope of our faith. I'll end with this quote by St. Gregory again. He says this, What is procession? Tell me, what is the unbegottenness of the Father? And I will explain to you the physiology of the generation of the Son and the procession of the Spirit. And both of us will be frenzy-stricken for prying into the mystery of God. And who are we to do these things? 
we who cannot even see what lies at our feet or number the sands of the sea or the drops of rain or the days of eternity, much less enter into the depths of God and supply an account of that nature which is so unspeakable and transcending of all words. I just love that image. We can't even count how many sands are on our seashores. That's literally right in front of us. What makes us think that we can possibly fully comprehend God himself? And yet the truth of the gospel is that Christ, the second person of the Trinity, condescended, came down to us, took on human flesh, suffered, died, and rose again. On the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and broke it, said, this is my body, broken for you. Whenever you eat of it, do it in remembrance of me. When the supper was over, he took the cup, said, this is my blood of the new covenant, poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Whenever you drink of it, do it in remembrance of me. So Lord, pour out your Holy Spirit on us gathered here and on these gifts of bread and juice. Make them be for us the body and blood of Christ, that we may be for the world the body of Christ, redeemed by your blood. By your Spirit, make us one with Christ, one with each other, and one in ministry to all the world. Lord, as you are one, make us one with each other until we feast in heaven at your victory banquet forever and ever. As we say the prayer that you taught us to pray, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Uh, friends, we'll have four different stations, two up at the front, two in the middle. Uh, if you want to come, the prayer altar is open for anyone. We also have gluten-free elements up at the front here. Just simply come and ask for them. Friends, the table is set. Would you come and taste the goodness of our Lord? Tastes his love and faithfulness to us.